Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. Good evening, Jim. Good evening, David. I, I didn't know if you were seeing the uh, the countdown there, right. so I made it an extra long number two. Yeah. <laughs> followed by an extremely short number one. I had an extra long number two earlier today. <laughs> I don't want to know that. I just don't. I know. No. This is this is premiere of the video. Yeah. Uh, the, this is only the second time we've done this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> now you're sure we're going to get audio out of this thing, right? Uh, I hope so. Uh, I really uh, do. Yeah, folks, the last one, uh, we had an echo, echo. Yeah, because uh, I left my internal audio on, including the Skype stream that was coming out into OBS. So the software we're trying to do this with. And so uh, what was happening was that you would get my audio and then you would get my audio again like two seconds later. Um, so we're not doing that this episode. Uh, <laughs> um, this is this is the second set of two hours yeah. that we're using to record very much of the same material. Uh, very much. I'm going to try we'll to condense it. And maybe it'll make more sense and it'll sound less like rambling this time. It was very rambling the last time. I said, say? I said that I wasn't going to get sleepy. And I, by the end of the last one, I was yawning. Yeah. Well, I always yawn during the episode. I don't know what <laughs> the hell that's all about. Usually, and you know, the thing is, we recorded early last time. Actually, we're recording earlier this time. Yeah. But, yeah. So... Anyway, uh, lots of good stuff's happening in the guitar world right now. Uh, first thing I want to do is talk about, you know, the passing of Little Richard. Yep. Um, if you're not familiar with Little Richard, I was listening to Long Tall Sally this weekend, and all I could think about was Predator, uh, the scene when they're on the helicopter, yep. uh, using some very choice uh, choice Words. language that would have that would have been more palatable in the decade in which that film was released. Yep. Um, <laughs> Uh, I was going to quote some of it, but I'm not gonna, <laughs> um, anyway. Yeah. So little Richard, man, what an impact he had on rock and roll in general. Um, and yes, obviously he's a piano player. Um, but I just, I can't help but think that like we wouldn't have had people like Prince without little Richard first, yeah. um, who obviously, whether you whether he want to believe that Prince did or not, obviously idolized Little Richard. Like that's pretty clear to me. The vocal style, the uh, outrageous attire, all this stuff seems to be a direct descendant of um, of Prince. Anyway, so yeah, you know, hats off to Little Richard. Um, I, apparently, it's not a COVID related death, so uh, that's kind of interesting too. Did we lose? We lost somebody else over the weekend too. I think. Um, I forget who. Anyway, uh, yeah. We did. You got anything to say, Jim? No, we lost uh, Jerry Stiller. Oh, that's right. Jerry Stiller was the Jerry other Stiller. one, and I think there was one more. There was. I'm trying yeah. to remember, and it's not that the person is not uh, important. Uh, just no, it's just that there's a lot of stuff going on in the so world right things. now, and it's hard to keep anything straight. In fact, actually, um, Little Richard isn't in my show notes. I had to. I had to pull for that one out of the air. <laughs> Somebody. Um, Somebody had mentioned somebody else, and it's not the two we mentioned because they said it was COVID-related, and uh, um, so I kept my political views to myself. Roy Horn, but I don't think he had an effect on the uh, no music industry. Yeah, no, I don't think so. 
but um, yeah, we've been losing people right and left, and many of them are COVID-related deaths. So, um, just just a little interesting to note. Um, so if you've been following along in the Facebook group, um, if you haven't, uh, the URL is down below us. If you're watching this on video, otherwise it'll be in the show notes. Um, join the Facebook group. We have a very active community. There. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's a great way to communicate with Jim and I directly. Um, and I do cool stuff in there, and Jim does cool stuff in there that doesn't necessarily make the show. But one of the things I did last week, I've got this wild hair from uh, some show listeners, but ma mainly from Mike Mara and his board, um, gave me some inspiration to check out soldered cables again. Um, I've been using George L. solderless cables on my board for a very long time. Um, and I've always kind of wondered if I'm missing something tonally from using solderless cables versus soldered cable. Um, so now that I'm going to kind of switch back, um, well, I'm not really switching back. So basically what I did was I bought the stuff to make soldered cable, and I'm holding some of it right here. Yep. This is the uh, my cable, and I actually got these really cool, uh, I got the square plug-ins. So they're supposed to be, you know, really good for, like, putting on your pedal board. It's supposed to be really compact. Um, I bought those, but I hadn't really, like, I was going to pull the trigger, and then I got to think, I was like, do I really know this is going to be better? Do I really know this is going to be worse? Like, um, so I thought, hey, I've got soldered cables sitting around, and I've got solderless cables sitting around, and I have a DAW, and I have a guitar, so I can test them. Yep. George L's on top, folks. So a um, couple things. If you listen to the test, uh, you'll hear that the George L has noticeably like more top end stuff going on. Um, and that's because it's a lower capacitance cable. It's 22 per foot, I think, uh, picofarads per foot, which means that it has less capacitance than the Proco cable that I was also holding, um, which has right around, I want to say like 44 PF per foot. Um, which means that you get a you get more like low mids coming through on the other cable, and it's really just a perception thing. You you can perceive it easily because you don't hear as much treble. It's not that they're you're losing anything on the uh, the George L. You're actually getting more, um, but it's not as pronounced because your you know your ears are balancing it differently. And of course, the way you use your devices, you might even actually push the gain harder like the volume knob on a pedal harder um, to make up for that lack of treble and it gives you more oomph and fatness in your sound. So that's kind of the thought process. Now, obviously the clips that I posted, the, the differences are very subtle. It's actually very hard to hear. I would recommend if you're going to listen to them, you want to have a really good pair of headphones or a pair of studio monitors and you're going to have to turn it up and you're probably going to have to strain your ears a bit. But what you're going to hear is basically that the George L's have more treble. Um, the interesting thing is that the George L cable, you would think you're not going to get as much trouble because it's a thinner cable. Um, and I, I think a lot of my bias towards George L's has come from people in forums. And this is me kind of being embarrassed to admit that I've been listening to people and not doing my own research. But um, a lot of people have told me over the years that, that starterless cables are not reliable. Now, I'm here to tell you that's that's bunk. Right. Number one, I've been using George L's for almost 15 years. I don't think I've ever had one fail live. Um, and the only ones I've ever had fail at home were because I didn't put them together right. Um, and once I got the knack for that, like it became easy. 
Uh, and I can give you some tips if you're interested, but but I mean they're really specific to the George L. Brand. As right. Jim, you've used solderless cables, right? right. Like you're yeah. using something right now. Yeah, I use the Planet Waves. Um, okay. Yep. So, in the George L. cables, the way that they work um, is very similar to the Planet Waves. We examined your Planet Waves. They're much a thicker cable. They're uh, right. definitely wider diameter. Yep. And um, that's kind of. Yeah, the wire important. inside is extremely thin, but the yeah. um, but the plastic, the rubber, whatever you want to call it, that jacket. Yeah, the jacketing is really thick. Um, yeah, and it protects the cable better. Right, but the but the thing is that um, so somebody who may not know uh, they they know enough about wiring to be dangerous. Uh, thin, thinner, physically thinner wire, copper presents different um, resistance at different um, at different uh, frequencies right right so this is why two copper um, or two pair works for you know when you go into DSL and you talk about DSL and how two pair works and how it's got to be twisted and it, the, and it twisted also has pair. to do with the purity of the copper as well it's not just you know because all all copper you buy is gonna gonna be an impure metal right um it's gonna have impurities in it and the more pure copper you get the less impure it's gonna be and therefore uh, essentially the idea is that you'll have a better right signal flow through it and yeah and even at distance like they you know you talk about dsl and you talk about okay i got a i got a twisted pair and it could go three miles um without being um without losing signal at a maximum and so on and so forth because the highest amount that we're trying to go through there is this many megahertz um at that time uh um or megabytes which was Mm -hmm. which goes a lot higher than that but anyway um what happens is that the that the twisting of the pair become then becomes a solid line and you lose the ability to distinguish ones and zeros and so on and so forth it's just but anyway i'm, I'm oversimplifying the um uh the way that that our signal runs through our cables obviously is um we change frequencies consistently Therefore, the the cable, in theory and in practice, does change um, in its its resistance to that. Now, what happens is what happens with a capacitor and what's happened with capacitance is that that's a similar thing to what's happening in a twisted pair. So you notice when you open it, you've got a core, right? And you've got a shield. Mm-hmm. And what you don't want to have happen, right, is you don't want to have your core um, sound jumping to the shield, right? That, that right. shouldn't happen. So... Um, you can you create capacitance, which is a standing wave inside the inside the shield, higher frequencies, so on and so forth. You know, you got um, those types of things. I mean, we're not working we're not working in super high frequencies. We're working at audible frequencies, but nonetheless, that's why we we tend to not want to create any real standing waves at you know whatever feet and why we can go certain feet. Um, and then that's why we start to lose that high end once we go over. Who's the, who's the musician that used like 100 feet of cable? Was that Buddy Guy? Uh, I don't recall exactly who offhand, but I know that like the old coily cables, they used to rate them at 20 feet and they were really like 100 foot. Right. And that was part of the reason why a lot of guitar players relied on them for 20 or 30 years after they stopped making them. Right. Was because they wanted the extra 
length to cut down on treble. Right. I know in television broadcast applications, they used to have whole trucks filled with cable. Yep. Um, and they would use that. And basically, they would find out what exactly what they needed, and they would patch in to different parts in the cable in order to get the signal loss or you know the right. fidelity that they needed for, for a given application. So, right. And um, so anyway, that's... I mean, that's the the kind of the, uh, again, it's oversimplified. You know, somebody's going to jump in. No, Jim, that's not it. I know it, I, I'm oversimplified. There's a lot There's a lot at play there. But but essentially, longer cables are worse, right? Right. You get more signal loss in longer cables. Right. That's, because that's the long and short of it. For those who don't know what capacitance is, because capacitance, people throw that word around all the time. Oh, there's too much capacitance. Not a capacitance. It's a capacitor that's faster. The, a capacitor is a simple a simple. Um, device that what it does is for DC voltage it does nothing passes DC right. voltage what happens is AC voltages and depending on the peak of farad of the or the farads um, of the capacitor um, you are move you are shunting AC voltage to ground you want to do that to get rid of um, AC nice. voltage Right, noise. Yeah, which, which which comes through is noise. Right. Um, That's what shielding is supposed to protect our shield, our our cable from. Right, right. And, the, of course, the downside of that is that it starts to get into the audible frequencies Correct. that we actually want to preserve. Um, so there's, like, this happy middle ground. And I think uh, I think the – getting back to, like, the idea that, um, you know, people hate soldered ca or solderless cable um, – Put it in perspective, right? I'm using a soldered cable as a, as a control in this test, yep. and the soldered cable should theoretically be worse, or it should be better than the George L's, and it's here's, not here's in terms a, of signal yeah. passing. Here's a here's a little um, a little known uh, reminder for people: every time you plug in a jack to a to a uh, pedal, guess what you've done? A solderless connection. You yeah. made a solderless connection right there. When you plug the jack into the guitar, that's a solderless connection, folks. Right. So I'm just saying it you have solderless connections. That is but, your weakest link in the chain. Yeah, <laughs> if you really want to go is. if you really want to get crazy with it, that like that's the truth. But um so here's the thing. A lot of the a lot of the uh conversation regarding solderless cable and why it's why it sucks. And I I, I could use the small quotes because we're on uh Yeah, because we're, on, we're video. on video now. So uh, the reason why it sucks, quotes. okay, is because um, is because laser. You know, oh, it's I've heard so like the live wires, right? So live wire makes a type of cable. I forget, I think it's something rail or something, um, and it's and it's solid core, right? Okay, and everybody was buying that for a while, yep. right? Yep. So here's the problem with sol solid core. Solid core, if you bend it too much, it Little breaks. Break. And, and so will braided core, but it takes a lot longer, right? Because right. you have these little strands and you have to break every one of them. So if you're a solid core user and you don't know any better, you go around on the internet and you tell everybody that all solderless cables are braided, right? So I did a little bit of research actually between now and the last time we recorded the episode, because the last time I just pointed out that George Ellis were, um, they were not solid, right? Uh, I forget what they call it. There's a, there's a term for it. But anyway, uh, stranded, right? They're stranded wire. So uh, did a little bit of research, found out that uh, lava cable, regular old lava cable is stranded. Yep. Um, the boss kit is stranded. Yep. Um, 
GL GLS or whatever the the really expensive stuff that's stranded. Yep. Um, Planet Waves is only, stranded. I just opened it. The, yeah, and the only solid core that I've seen is literally that lava cable, like mm -hmm. that one monorail or whatever right, lava right. cable. And so that's not a correct assumption to make. I mean, like that's that's kind of shady, right? Yep. Um, the other thing is, I know people who like the George L. Cable so much, they don't use the ends. They solder it with real ends. Right. Like right. regular soldered ends. Yeah. And then use it that way. Because the cable is very, very thin. Um, yes. It's about a quarter. Here, let me see if I can compare. Um, obviously, uh, you can see that this is thicker, right? This is about a quarter of the size or a third of the size of this yeah. in diameter. Yep. And it's a lot more flexible. Yep. And I think the advantage to the solid core that people liked was it would hold its shape, right? right? Yep. But hold its shape at what price? Now, granted, you put these on a pedal board, you're not supposed to be using these. You're not supposed to be moving them around and stuff. Like, they're not they're not meant for that. Right. Um, and they'll last for years. Actually, I used to use... Jim, this is, this is where I'm going to make myself look bad. I used to have a 25 foot of this exact cable with these ends that I used to use as a regular guitar cable all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, it was Why the not? dumbest thing I'd ever done. It was well, the dumbest thing I'd ever done. 25 feet is a little long, but still, you could do well, that. <laughs> well, yeah, no, here's the problem. So, because this stuff doesn't ever really straighten out properly, it's like yeah. you see I'm holding it straight up and down. Yeah. It just coils so has, bad. Like, yeah. it was such a nightmare. Half the time I was playing it, it was all wrapped up and like knotted. Oh, yeah. and, Cause I'm like, I'm not straightening that out. Yeah, wire memory. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a joke, but I didn't know any better, and I was like, "Well, okay, I can do that. I got twenty five foot of this laying around, and I need a cable, so I'll make one." So, um, and so, uh, I did. So I I didn't know that they actually. So George L does make an instrument cable, like a higher gauge instrument cable. I didn't know that there was a difference. So, so something, yeah. So something for the listeners to realize when you're talking about a more expensive cable versus less expensive cable, because to most people, copper's copper, you know, so on and so forth. Um, the the cable, the, the purity of the copper, you mentioned that earlier. The purity of the copper is one of the things. So if the copper isn't pure enough or, um, or is less pure, that's going to be the cheaper cable. Um, those will be the ones that didn't, you know, pass this test, um, resistance per foot, you know, to a frequency versus this test and so on and so forth. Right. <clears throat> um, and that's the important thing. When you test resistance, if you just take your multimeter and you go across to it, you go, oh, exactly the same. You're not testing the way that that the test would be done on a bench test at a at a factory. Factory is going to put specific frequencies. They're going to run a band, and they'll say, "Okay, yeah. this frequency at this frequency at this frequency, whatever the use a whatever spectrometer their and all that, right, whatever their test yeah. laid out." So, right, they'll use a, a spectrometer. So the um, the other part of it is when you look at those braids, you look at them when you look at them personally. You go, "That's just random crap, right? It's just a bunch of braided." cable no it's, it's not though no, those braids those braids are very specific uh um right down to the micrometer i mean those things are when they're braided that is what makes that cable a little better and it kind of when you hear the term what is it we used to use the term directional cable right there's some some people that use direction yeah some cable. people still think there's directional cable yeah. um i mean i i can't hear a difference and i've i've played around with it so. yeah because the the braiding, just looking at, at the way it works, and and maybe somebody who's got a better engineering background than me, I, 
I'm thinking the braiding would still cause the cable to run the same both ways unless unless there's something you're doing chemically to the cable to the copper to cause one end to be different from the other. I, I well, that's what so that's what kind of gets me. So like this idea that um, there's a directional cable. So if you ever use one of these guys, this is a sun face, but the fuzz face, right? Right. You know that 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 the interaction between you and the input. Yep. It's actually an interaction. It's right. guitar signal in and then load back right. to my pickups. And that changes things. Yep. Um, it cha it changes the what they call the resonance or whatever, the pickup. Right. Um, and so when you consider that, that's why I say directional cable kind of like – I re would you really want that? Right. I and mean, that's where – yeah, it, it kind of – because we're talking about – frequencies and we're going to have standing waves that's going to be part of you know it's just how much I, you have a flow the way electricity works is not unless you had like one note that was continuous <laughs> they would never that that's not a real well, specifically in dc voltage yeah so uh in ac voltage it's a little bit different but in dc right. voltage it's definitely directional right okay. it's complete the circuit in the fastest way possible that is correct and um, ac works like a wave yeah you're continuously moving trons in both directions right i don't know i um again you get down to uh how many trons and over how many feet and over how much time and over how much frequency and yeah and those we're not engineers are, yeah. <laughs> fair warning we're not engineers no. <laughs> um but we can tell you from real world experience what you know what you can expect from a higher capacitance cable versus a lower capacitance cable and it's actually the reason why i wanted to really bring this up is i wanted to poo-poo on people who say that solderless cables suck because right. it's wrong it's just wrong yeah. um it depends on the application number one depends on what you want to do with it yeah. um i think i'm going to be making the switch to solder cable only because the guitars that i play tend to have a lot of treble content and i'd like to curb some of it um, I am a primarily a fusion shred guitar player, um, and for me, it makes the most sense um, to curb some of my treble, as opposed to like you know trying to um, razor blade everybody's ears off when I play. So, um, so correct me if I'm wrong. So let's say you wanted a treble bleed circuit, right? You put a treble, which a treble bleed circuit is typically a capacitor across yeah. the um, the volume or the tone knob, right? It volume actually knob. keeps stuff from being shunted to ground when you pull the volume knob down, right? Right. So um, I always thought a treble bleed circuit was to lower treble, not to raise it. But for some reason, it seems like it, it maintains it. No, it's it maintaining it when your volume knob rolls down. Yeah. So when you... If you ever played a guitar, and I'm sure you've played guitar because you're because you've had you know a lot of stuff in, in the yeah, a lot of category too yeah. over the years. Yeah. If you you know that when you roll the volume knob down, your treble goes down. Yeah, it, it, it's just part of the that's part of the thing. And I think part of it's the 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 Munson, the Fletcher Munson effect. Yeah. But I but that's the idea is that it will keep the treble stable, so you can keep your clarity at lower volumes on the on the uh, volume knob. Personally, I actually. I don't know that I'm actually a big fan of the uh, the treble bleed mod. I think for guitars where I've set the volume back to like you know three three notches of below ten, like seven or whatever. Um, yeah, I think a treble I think a treble bleed might be might be useful. Uh, I think most of my guitars probably have it installed actually, um, but I personally I've had guitars that don't, 
And it never even, like, it never fazed me. It just never, never even, I was never worried about it. So, um, yeah. I don't usually, know. usually I used that to my advantage. So I would yeah. roll off a little bit to do just that, to take some of the treble off. And so, um, you know, the, the, what's the word I want there, that, uh, Eddie Van Halen thought of, uh, you don't need a tone control because you just use the volume to, to back off the tone. Well, and because he took the tone control out of his circuit and was running direct from volume pot to the, to the, uh, input jack, he may not have needed it. It may, it may have, cause he didn't have as much load going on his, on his output signals. Like every time you add a control in your, in your output path, you're you're going to be dumping some signal to the ground. It's right. just going to happen. Yep. And so by eliminating those controls, he may not need the treble bleed. I want to say the Wolfgangs have the treble bleed on it, though. Yeah. That that they've they've used that now. And th part of it. So this is the context for why you might want it. Say you're Steve Vai or Joe Cetriani, right? You're doing your thing. Actually, Joe Cetriani is a better example because he plays in a three piece band. Usually, it's usually him, a bass player, and a drummer, and sometimes a keyboard player, right? And when he rolls back his volume knob, he's still the focus on stage. He right. still wants to cut the mix. He still wants to stand out in front. He still wants to be very well hurt. So for him, having the treble bleed mod is brilliant because that means he can roll back and he can still get all the feel of it, but the audience can still hear the treble frequencies punching through. So, I mean, that's the situation. Whereas you and I, when we're accompanying somebody, so like I, I'm playing an old Stumpy right now and, and you've played in various bands over the years. Um, you're going to want, when you roll that volume up for the treble, to just kind of take a step back so that you can let the rest of the band fill out and, and kind of have your own sonic space that you occupy underneath it to accompany. Right. Um, so I could see, I mean, there's there's definitely, I there, I wouldn't look at it and say that it's a negative or a positive. I just think it's different tools in that case. Yeah. Totally yeah. different tools. Definitely. Definitely. I think that, um, you know, it always depends on you, uh, it, it, the individual, the, the player. Um Personally, I like having a tone control, um, and uh, but I like a treble bleed on a, 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 a. I'll give an example on a Stratocaster style or Telecaster style, especially because again, there's that ice pick that you can get at top that if you just bring it back just a hair, it really smooths out. Yeah, there's something about rolling the tone control that sounds different, and and it may be just be me. It may just be me. I. I have found so this is I'm going to share my knowledge of single coils to you um, and this is not necessarily something that, that everybody else is going to agree with I'm sure um, but I found that guitars that tend to have a really ice picky top um, more compression so like pushing the amp a little bit harder and I, not necessarily taking back treble but adding mids a lot of times or or increasing bass is a great way to curb that. Um, so that's some things you might try, but, but generally speaking, yeah, I mean, a, a, you know, something where you could roll the treble back would, would be helpful. And yeah. there are people that have built like, um, basically what's like a Gibson Veritone circuit. In yeah. A metal that you can use to just permanently set a tone control. Yeah. Um, you know, or, or set a fixed tone control sweep or whatever, and just leave it running all night long. Yeah. So, um, but honestly, I think that's sort of the charm of those those uh, guitars. I, definitely, I think the selection of amp you use is probably the most critical thing because I know like um, I've had 
terrible luck with certain amps and then like much better luck with other amps um, in terms of how ice picky something is. And even the speaker um, can just control how much you're going to beam somebody. Um, but yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That you're, you're still using that. You're still using the, uh, do you have the same problem with the, uh, the twin as you do the uh, Marshall for that? Or no. the ice picky. Yeah. I've been able to, to calm that down. Uh, well, my treble. Think... So on the on the twin, I've got the treble at five, the mids at seven, and the bass at six. Yeah. So you're trying to pretend it's not a blackface. You got it. <laughs> um, you got it. And then on a, on the the Marshall cause so both of those amps are open back though, right? I think even yep. the, and that's going to help a ton. Yep. So that's the one thing I hear a lot of people like, oh, it just beams me really hard. Like I can't. Like I can't, my audience complains and the first thing I tell them is get an open back cab yep. because then it's not going to project as much. Right. And then look for a Celestian speaker as opposed to like a JBL or something like that because those speakers tend to be more than, more than what you're going to get out of a Celestian, which is a little bit flatter response. Right. Um, but that's, you know, that's neither here nor there. You'd really have to test that and know what you're getting into um, on, either, on either end of that spectrum. So, but yeah, so. Basically, we're going to do some more testing. Um, the goal here is once I get this cable all cut and uh, soldered together, um, we're going to run my board on existing George L, and then we're going to do some clips, and then I'm going to do the same clips with my board with soldered cable. And uh, I will do it both with like a clean signal, and then I'll do it with a dirty signal, and we'll turn some of the effects on and off so you can kind of get a feel of like how that all works. Um and then I'll probably, because I do it in every video, I'll probably turn all the effects on at some point. Um, and then we'll compare. Because I think another component of pe what people forget when they're wiring up a pedal board is that effects themselves do have an impact on your signal, especially if they're true bypass. Um, because when they're in true bypass, you're you're flowing this, you know, as close as you can to like a direct signal path. Um, but when you ha when you have it not bypassed, all of a sudden your you know your signal's going through this like circuit, circuit yeah. and whether it's well grounded and whether it's well designed, and you know all these other things can affect your signal qu quality coming out. And I wonder how much of an effect that has on capacitance and the load that your pickups see and all that, and how that's going to play well, that into all that. Yeah, I that's what I was about to say. So the the um, remember, folks, when you play a guitar, whether you're playing it straight into the amp or you're playing it pedals, your guitar becomes part of the circuit, right? So um, your guitar becomes part of if you're playing pedal board, the first pedal. That's that's what happens. You've got the pedal through the wire and your guitar back around, right? So you've created a circuit right there however mm -hmm. short or long that is. So um, that that's why some folks who use wireless, oh, who refuse to use wireless, I should say, um, it's the reason because there's a something, a certain something to them, to that magical path between the two. But anyway, um, which is why they always have the same pedal in the same spot. You know, that first number one is always number one. Um, and... Uh, Anyway, that, what I was getting at there is um, when, you, when you take just what you're talking about. So if you're in a true bypass, you've taken essentially a piece of wire, um, two pieces of wire because you've got the, the ground and the shield and the, and the inner core. But you've taken two pieces of wire and you've, said, you've shunted that through the pedal, 
You said, okay, you're a direct path through the pedal, not going through the circuit. And then you say, okay, I want to turn that circuit on. Um, they redirect the signal. That's why some of the older ones would pop when they when they uh, went because they made a physical clacking sound. Yeah, which yeah. they changed in the way that they they do the um, the little they micro put a resistor. They put a resistor and stuff in there to 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 soften that. Yep, um, and that definitely plays into yeah. you know the the amount of signal loss you get going to the thing. The other the other thing is now they use um, these like kind of faux bypass switches yep where they are true bypass but they use um a relay yep and and so they can set the timing of the relay to be effective for what they want to do right um that's kind of where i think the future is really um yeah you that... can see wampler and eqd and i think some of the, i think you could use it using it um wampler is definitely using it in some yeah wampler is he's, well. he's said he has and and the reason for that clacking sound is because effectively what you've done is you've disconnected your it's just yeah, as if you like unplug your, your cable, cable and plug it plug back, it back in. in right yeah yeah um, and you're actually hearing the, yeah. the sound of the foot switch clicking yeah which is even like even more hilarious yeah. um because if you think about it, I know I know people who have refused to use pedals in the studio because acoustically, when you yeah. click them, you can hear them coming on. So they want to be like patched into them. It's yeah, it's like a whole thing. Um, but yeah, I don't I mean, I don't think the I think it's going to be more interesting to see what the bi bypass situation looks like in a lot of these pedals. This is one that should click. Um, I don't recall it clicking, but because this is like. You know, this is basically a fuzz phase. Um, right. It should click, and I don't think it does. So I'm I'm betting they use the resistor in there to yeah that from happening. But and um, so now some of the newer foot switches, when you click the switch, um, they've got like a soft a dampening a sound dampening yeah, which is an expensive switch. Well. It's not the switch that does it. It's a relay on the board that actually gets triggered by the switch. Right. So the switch is always on and you hit it and then it, and then it hits the relay. Right. Which is, I mean, that's like the oldest technology there is for doing this kind of stuff. Right. But I, I'm personally, I'm a guy that thinks that we should have buffers and everything. Yeah. Um, and I think that if a, a well-designed buffer is probably critical to that. Yep. And I think most buffers are not well designed. Yeah. Um, so let me share with you for a moment. So I got this. This is it's in the box, but this is a uh, TS mini, oh, yeah. yep. right? Which is like a, a mini version of a TS eight hundred eight. Um, the tube screamer buffer, in my opinion, is one of the best buffers on earth because it'll play nice with this guy, right? Um, and this guy hates buffers. I don't care what buffer it is. He hates it. <laughs> um, and the Tube Screamer is one of the few buffers where I actually think it sort of improves the pedal in the sense that... So the, so the fuzz face, like the, the big thing about it is that you can roll back your volume knob like a hair and all of a sudden it's clean. And it get, it borders line it, it borders on insanity. It's really difficult to get any shade of dirt in between clean and dirty. I mean, you get like mild dirt, like the mildest dirt you could possibly get... Or it's full on filthy, right? And there's nothing in between, um, and that's like literally, you know, a millimeter of turning the knob. <laughs> it's the it's the smallest movie. You can't possibly imagine it until you've actually done it. Um, and the tube screamer actually smooths that out just a hair, right. whereas other pedals, like it, it'll disappear completely. 
it's like that that isn't even an effect anymore. Right. And the other thing it does is uh, if you use a buffer in front of a fuzz face or after a fuzz face, it it does things to the treble. And it, the best way I can think to describe is it like it flattens the pedal. It loses all its dimension and it makes it sound splatty and kind of like it is sometimes like Velcro, um, like like ripping Velcro off. Yep. And you don't want that. Like the reason you use a fuzz face is to sound like Jimi Hendrix. And I don't think anybody's going to tell me that Jimi Hendrix's sound was like splatty. No. You know, maybe in certain songs, but I mean, for the most part, it's a roaring distortion sound, right? Um, and so I've been using the tube screamer with it and actually it's kind of because, uh, again, I was talking to Mike and he and I have been going back and forth about Eric Johnson stuff and Eric Johnson uses a tube screamer into his fuzz face. And the interesting thing that we found was that we actually looked up the settings and he uses his fuzz face like this. I'm going to hold it up. The, the fuzz knob is like at almost nine o'clock. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Between nine and 10 and his volume knob is like at unity. Yep. And then his tube screamer is like the drive is off the charts and you're going, wait a minute. I thought everybody used the tube screamer with like a lot of, or with like very little drive. Yeah. But no. the way he's using it, he's pushing tons of mids. Right. And scooping off a ton of bass to drive the fuzz face. Right. So actually in, in actuality, he's doing the same thing that metal players do, but getting a totally different sound, which is to scoop the bass off yep. and to, to push up the mids um, because that pedal reacts differently to it. Right. And then, it's yeah. A cool idea. And then he's taking, he's using the fud phase to, uh, or the fuzz phase to get that unity, unity gain. If, if I was going to drive a line of effects, like if I was going to make a line of effects, I think what I would do is I'd come up with a really, really good tube screamer circuit, maybe a tu- some sort of tunable tube screamer. And then I would just literally put that with like every fuzz and every distortion pedal conceivable after it. Right. Because I think. I'm not saying that the tube screamer goes with everything. I think you can get so much color out of different stuff by running a tube screamer in front of it just because it is geared to provide the correct frequencies to punch through a mix. That's why they're so popular. That's why every third overdrive effect is the tube screamer um, with you know some mods on it. Like that, that there's a reason for that. Um, and you can accomplish much of the same thing with like a Boss GE7 by boosting mids um, and cutting bass. So, yeah, I, that's my impression. But the reason I started to talk about this is the buffer. I think this buffer is very, very transparent. I know people will argue with me that audio files will be like, that's not transparent. But it's transparent in the sense that it doesn't do things to your signal that cause it to play not place nice with other effects. Boss buffers are pretty good. But in my opinion, boss buffers still mess with things like vintage fuzz. Um... So I still kind of, I earn the set of caution. If I'm going to use a, uh, some sort of vintage fuzz pedal on a board, then I bring out the Kingmaker because I right. want to use, if I, that's, I mean, that way everything plays nice. Um, and I know a lot of people are like, well, you just got to use what's really good. Listen, Jim, you were talking about um, doing the thing where, I think it was you that were talking about do, building a board. No, somebody else. Tell me they're going to build a board and they're going to use all of the best effect for each type. They're just going to do a bunch of research and find what they think is the best, and that's what they're going to get, and spare no expense on price. And um, I was kind of laughing because I'm like, well, you can do that, but I don't think anything's going to play well. Right. Like, that, they're not going to play nice together. Right. Um, that's, like that saying, my, that's like saying you're going to take uh, the Kardashians 
and um, put them in a playground with Trump kids, and they're all going to play nice together. <laughs> yeah, I I think, well, um, I think growing up and like, especially in the last four or five years, because uh, I, I didn't grow up in the last four or five years. I'm 35 years old, but um, I I think in the last four or five years when I had this like pedal awakening, I start buying all these pedals. I think that I thought if I get the good stuff, obviously the that'll work well with the other good stuff, right. and then I'll have this great board. And I had lots of good stuff, but what I found out was none of it worked well together. And there's a reason for that because if you want the best in breed of something, you have to build around it. You have to pick what you want and build around it. And and pedal boards are like people don't see them as the modular system that they are. They think that oh well, it's got a quarter inch jack. You know, that's what I want to use into the next quarter inch jack. And that's just simply not the case. I think that's what um, Boss does well. And that is if you use Boss pedals with Boss pedals, that's what Boss absolutely. does. Absolutely. Um, and I think you'll find that with a lot of the brands, that their pedals work well within the brand. But once you get other. beyond the brand. But that's – well, I think that's why guys like JHS, uh, Josh Scott, um, and uh, Wampler and uh, those folks, they have a ton of different pedals is because – they're kind of saying, okay, how is it going to work with this amp? How's it going to work with this pedal? How's it going to work with this kind of guitar? And so um, they're they're constantly doing research to figure out, okay, because even Josh Scott will tell you, there are times when he'll say, yep, no, my pedal is not the best one for that. I, I don't have a good pedal for that uh, application. You're better off going to Mike, uh, uh, who builds who builds Sunface, uh, Mike. Um, Analog Man. Analog Man. Mike Analog Man Piera. Yeah, Mike Piera. Or, um, you know, he'll say go to Wampler. He'll say go to Keeley. you know. And those dudes are all friends, so they're yeah. going to point you in the right direction. They'd rather you be happy right. than to buy their product. Right, because it it's not enough money for them to make you unhappy because you grabbed their product over somebody else's because they were able to make $30, $40 off of you. Or well, and, and actually, as of all those people that I've met over the years – um, they all worship each other in the sense that like if somebody builds a really cool pedal, they've all got it. Right. And they're all talking about how good it is. And it, there's no like, I wish I'd have built that. It's not, it's not like that at all. It's very there, much like, yeah, this is cool. And I'm glad you made this. You know, like, there this was a area of expertise. Kind of there's an Anderton's video where they've got the DNM drive and, yeah. and then they've got the new snake uh, something drive snake oil or whatever it is and then they're like they're doing this and he's like oh 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 and he knocks it off so I kind of want to get a DNM drive just so I can put the words pretentious all over it yeah. <laughs> it'll be the most pretentious drive pedal ever I can't I um, can't see me getting it not because I don't think it's a good pedal I don't know it from Adam I don't really care I, I've i got the, the 50-50 coming now I, I'm i going to have enough you, drive pedals you do to... I'm going to put it in the mail I bet guys looking for it today so i could put it in the mail for you i was hoping to get it out today um <laughs> yeah then i can pay you <laughs> i'd like to order my king of tone uh, that would be nice um that's the goal so king of tone is coming um and that's that's a whole other conversation i got to play around with the king of tone and helix and because uh, i have helix native and uh that's definitely kind of where i want to go it's it's somewhere between uh, uh the way i would characterize it somewhere between a tube screamer and a uh, like a uh, like a blues driver, um, and it's kind of like more Marshall flavored. But I I will say I will say I guess that um, 
I don't know that it's going to be the end of my dirt journey. I'm probably going to hang on to my tube screamer. Um, just, just at least in the beginning, because I still need something to go with this guy, which is my seven string Kiesel, yep. uh, for the, for the low B. Like, I don't think, a I don't think a King Tone is going to drop enough bass. So I need to make sure that I can curb some more. Um, so I'll keep the tube screamer around, but I don't know that it's going to have a permanent place on the board or anything like that. Um, so I got to ask yeah. when, uh, you know, when you think about it, is there really an end to a dirt journey? No, I, I just don't think there is. I think for most folks there isn't. I mean, it it just depends. Um, I think that journey ends when you find the right amp. Yeah. Uh, to be to be completely honest, um, it's not a pedal journey. Yeah. I think of having flavors of dirt is like having options. Right. So and and actually, I'm not looking at the the King of Tone as an overdrive pedal so much as a booster. Um, and I want to hit my amp in different ways. Yeah, I could definitely see, and I'm laughing because I'm like I'm becoming more increasingly aware. I've been listening to Nick Johnston a lot lately. I'm sure I've mentioned it on the show already. Nick Jonas, Nick Johnston. Oh, okay. You know, not the the guy that plays for Schecter Guitars, right? Um, and plays for himself. Uh, not Nick Jonas, the guy that plays for Money, and lots of it. Um, Nick Johnston has, uh, of course, the the Schecter Strat, right? which is a Wenge neck, three single coils, uh, pretty straight up Strat affair. Maybe, yeah. I think it's got stainless steel frets on it. And I think it's, uh, he's got a go to 510 or something like on there. But um, I would character as kind of like a, a circular. And the whole idea is that uh, he plays this music that's like outrageous gent fusion kind of like metal hybrid thing, right? Right. And um, I really hate to use the word gent to describe him, but I know that he gets a lump, lumped in a lot with those guys. Um, and I was kind of like, when I first heard him, I was like, oh, hey, had a look at that. And I and I just kind of wrote him off. But now that I've listened to him more and more and like I've started getting into his music more, I'm kind of realizing that I sound a lot like him um, in my gear selection and kind of where my tone is. And it's because I use strats into Mark V's, Mesa Boogies, which he does. Yep. Um, and I was, and I, you remember, Jim, I, I when I went to Gearfest last year, I was talking about buying a PRS MT15, the um, the Mark yeah. Money amp. Yep. Yeah, well, I saw a video the other day of uh, Nick Johnston playing through an MT15. <laughs> and I kind of went, yeah, I like that sound. Yes. <laughs> I was just sitting there thinking like, I wonder why. <laughs> you just think to yourself, why does this guy keep copying me? He has so he uses the um the precision drive from Horizon, which is uh Mission Mansour's MXR based company. Um and uh I was thinking about buying a precision drive, and now I'm actually like looking at his board and I'm like, hmm, this is pretty pretty good ideas here. Cause like I, I'm like, I'm already going down this path, like why not? You know, at this point, yeah. why not? Yeah. Um no, so I, I actually come more from the Robin Trower side of, of where Nick Johnston is, but um, I definitely see a lot of similarities between what he does and what I've been doing. And the funny part is I started doing it like in a vacuum. I didn't know about him. Right. I didn't find out about him until way later. Yeah. Um, because I'm descended from, you know, Jimi Hendrix and that kind of stuff. Um, and Yngwie and Richie Blackmore. Like, that's what... <laughs> so then I start seeing, you know, this guy and I'm like... Hey, he sounds a lot like me. And I'm kind of thinking like, yeah, he's kind of descended from those same dudes. Like what the hell? 
it just it just so happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, we don't play anything alike. Obviously, Nick Johnson's a way better player than I am, but um, right. I somebody would like to play like that. I'm just kidding. You know, I I say the same thing. I've been, uh, you know, I, I, when I talk to my uh, instructor, he says, "Jim, stop putting yourself down. You're a good player." And I go, "No, no, I'm not." But I, I but I always strive to do better. And I and I look at what somebody else is doing. And at some point, like I'm 56 years old. Well, I'll be 56 years old when we record the next podcast. And so, um. I have to realize that I'm going to be me for the rest of my life. I've been me my whole life and I'm going to be me. It ain't going to change. <laughs> it's not going to change now, folks. And so some of you may have found a way to to be someone else, but you know, I take uh uh I take pride in the fact that I'm me and I take a little issue in the fact that I'm me, but I have to realize that I'm just <laughs> me. I mean, that's all there is to it. Um yeah. thinking about um this this conversation like i don't really feel like i put myself down so much as every time i pick up the guitar and i learn to do something new i think this is the greatest thing i've done and the fact is i'm 35 years old and i'm still going this is the greatest thing i've done like yeah. almost every other time i pick up the guitar right and to an extent that's where you start to realize like there's always so much room to grow yeah. that it's very easy to not be okay with yourself right you know what I mean? And right. I don't feel like I'm not okay with myself. I just feel like I I have room to grow. I know where I need to grow. And I hope I can do it quickly enough to make a run of it. Because um, I don't want to be like, you know, 10 years from now, looking back at what I've been doing for the last 10 years and go, God, I really haven't done anything. Right. Which actually happened to me recently. So I was listening to recordings I made when I was in high school and in like my first year of college. And I was like, wow, that still sounds like me. And it was kind of like, you'd think I'd change, I, my sound would be different. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you'd think I would have figured things out or like whatever. The only thing that was different was the recording quality. That's pretty much it. Well, I, I say that, but obviously I'm a better player now. But um, the stylistic choices I was making were very similar. Um, the overall tonality that I was going for is still pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, which. I, you know, love it or hate it. I mean, that's obviously like personal preference thing. And I don't, I don't particularly love my tone. Like, I don't think I've ever had a moment where I've just been like, man, I love the way I sound right now. Yeah. Uh, but oh, I tend to have me. that a lot with other people, you know, like I can hear somebody else and be like, but, but I think it's just because I get stuck on it. Right. I, yeah. Yeah. I, I've noticed one thing that's better um, that, that has always improved and that's my rhythm. Um, I'm better at locking in. I'm better at finding that weird spot where a ghost note belongs or whatever uh, right. than I was before. Although as age has crept up on me, there's a couple of things that I'm starting to slip on. Like I'll forget stuff. Um, and uh, it, it's not like a bad forget, like, like I've forgotten how to tie my shoes or something, but I'll forget like – what the heck chord was that? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. But you, you, I could figure it out by ear most of the time. But it's become a little bit of a, a thorn in the side. But I think that, um, you know, we grow. We grow as individuals. And sometimes I'll go, you know what? Uh, I thought that that was that. But I think maybe that might be two guitars playing two different chords. Or, um, you know, it panned left and right. And so I always thought I was playing it right. And then I was like, wait a minute. 
there's something wrong with us. And I can't get it right, no matter which side I'm listening to. I'm I'm playing it differently. So sometimes I find that. Um, I was listening to a song, I can't remember. Oh, it was Overjoyed by uh, Stevie Wonder. Um, love the song. It's And it's got these... He he modulates in that song so many times it would drive you bananas if you tried to chart it. And uh, he has this um, this vocal run he does. And the only reason I'm talking about it is because this girl on The Voice sang it. And if you listen to Stevie, he sings every time I learn. You know, so he, he has this thing that sounds like it's ascending the whole time but he actually does like a pentatonic run, like you're going to do up and down, up and down, up and down. And she did it like a chromatic run. So instead of da 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 she went da 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 and, and it just, and I went, ah, now I know what's wrong with that. <laughs> Not with what he did, but what... I mean, the chromatic she, run is harder. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, Especially to shove that many notes on that chromatic run that only goes five notes. Well, I was watching. Uh, I was watching somebody play the Black Page this morning. Uh-huh. And uh, are you familiar with that piece of music or not? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I still don't understand like the rhythmic notation for that, where there's things in there that are like eleven tuplets. It's yeah, it's yeah. like eleven notes jammed into the, the you know into one beat, and it's like wh- what. Like, how do you even, I mean, it's that's like alien music. Like, who writes that? Um, yeah. And, and the whole point, of course, obviously, the whole point of that was like Frank Zappa was, he was kind of kind of joking with his band and was like, here, I'll bet none of you guys can play this. And he came yeah. up with this piece and he just handed it to him. And then Terry Bozio went off and actually learned it. Um, and, you know, I'm sure Frank was just as surprised as everybody else that they could figure yeah. it out. But I'm sure also it was like notated goofily. It's like yeah. it's like um, so it's like when you paraphrase something, when you write music, there are often ways for you to do the same thing with like what I would consider to be poor notation. It wouldn't be the regular way to write it, but right. like it would accomplish the same thing, um, kind of like a homonym, right? A word that sounds the same, right? But- or, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And I, and I get the feeling that the, that's what's going on in the black page is like he found a, a novel way to notate a few things that makes it oh. really, really difficult. In addition to the fact that it's just a technically insane piece of music to play to, reg- to begin with. Um, right. But yeah, it's, it's like that, you know, it's just complicated for the sake of being complicated to throw in a chromatic run in a piece of music right. and, and a piece of vocal music, no less. Yeah, in a piece of vocal, and I thought to myself, why would you, why would you make that so difficult on yourself, as to as to make it so that you can't, like, and then it doesn't quite it it didn't quite grab the ear, to so, a a modulation it, for those who don't know, it's a key change, right? I don't even think so I, I would not even consider that a modulation. I think that would just be like all grace notes. That's kind of the way I would think of that. Well, no, he yeah, he graces into he modulates he he slowly modulates like up a half step, then up a half step, then up a, the whole song modulates all the way through. I want to say there's like four or five modulations. And, that, and that, is that Stevie Wonder that did that? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so he wrote back it when that he was way. young. Yeah, I thought this we were saying the performer decided to. Oh no no he wrote it that way. But which song are and we talking so, about? I would I miss that. Um, overjoyed. 
Okay. Overjoyed. Yeah. I've been da 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 da. And and um, so he uh, he's doing this. You know, when he plays it and he sings it, um. You know, he goes every time I da 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 da, and then he, you know, he comes back down, and then he goes, and then he goes up again. But the next time, he just goes one more half step. He just, I'm gonna go a little bit further. Gonna take it, gonna take it one more syllable. That's gonna pull it, pull your ear to this new place mm-hmm. that I'm gonna be, and um, it's just it, it's mystical in that you just don't notice it. So you hear it. But if somebody does it chromatically, it just kind of slaps you in the face. Like, all right, I just I just went into this new spot and and you don't get to you don't get to feel like you're still in the song because the song is supposed to feel joy. The song is about, you know, and then you lose the meaning of the song. Sometimes it's it's like um, what Rick Beato talks about. You know, a song is written and and performed in a way because it's that's how it makes it, it pulls you in. I think we've talked about that before. Yeah, right? I think we I think we've had discussions about it. Um, and and while I tend to agree with that, I think audience plays a key part key part in that, and the <laughs> level of interpretation that goes on from the audience. Um, yeah. Because obviously, like songs that are written with a broad audience, I mean, so like, let's think about praise and worship, right? So the whole right. idea that you're going to go into a praise and worship setting, you're typically going to find songs that are easy to sing, that you can predict where the melody's going to go, and all this different stuff, because that's 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 their intended audience, right? Um, right. But if you're going to listen to like, um, I'm trying to think, like bebop jazz or something, right. you're not going to predict where that's going to go. <laughs> you're nope. not going to be able to, to hum that melody before you've heard the whole thing, you know? Um, and I think... I think that's sort of the charm of that music. And I think the people that are like, have the ear for that have developed it. And I think that they look for different stuff in the music that, that attracts them. And so, yeah, absolutely. Like, um, and I've had this comment commentary with people in the group before too. It's like melody and harmony are critical components to composing music, but they're not always the most critical. It just depends on the audience you're speaking to. That that okay, I agree with you there. But when you're talking about pop music, you're you're going towards right. a but that's, generic... but that's a specific genre, and you've got a wide audience, right? Right, right. right. And I think that's where, yeah, I think that's why some people get Pink Floyd and some people don't. Well, I don't see I don't see Pink Floyd as being like way beyond the the realm of like normal pop sensibility with like harmony and that kind of thing. When you start getting into the bands that uh, are dabbling with you know like dissonance or and or dwelling in dissonance, and a King perfect Crimson. example is like taking a yeah, King Crimson is a good example, but it's that's a little progressive. Like that's kind of its own that's its own jam, right? Um, yeah. But you're talking about Stevie Wonder. And he's yep. a perfect example because he does definitely have music that like borders on atonal at times. Right. Um, he ain't done nothing. This is one of the songs that that I think about. That is like it definitely has you know it's like damn near tone clusters in it. Um, where yeah. I think that that speaks to a broad audience because he uses groove and he uses um, you know motifs and devices that work sensibly. But he can sprinkle in this this ugly stuff in there too, um, and gets away right. with it. Um, but he's a master composer, which is why it was interesting. We we started out talking about Stevie Wonder because 
everything he does has this like especially the later stuff um has this like element of avant-garde jazz that's like below the surface just lurking there it's like the alligator underneath the water you just wait for his jaws to come yeah. out and just hurt, you know rip you a new one but uh yeah but you know remember he's written songs for everybody too um and, oh, yeah. and was selling songs to people like jeff beck i mean um because we've ended his lovers and and any of our you know our guitar virtuoso catalog remember that song was written by stevie wonder stevie wonder yeah yeah on on a keyboard right on a guitar folks right um and uh uh probably my favorite uh, and a lot of people's favorite stevie wonder song that has a lot of really sneaky stuff in a Sir Duke. Yeah, no, that's another great one. Actually, that was the other one I yeah. was thinking of. Um, yeah, the core, <laughs> the core changes in that are yeah. uh, psycho. Um, they and, and and Steely Dan is another great example of a band that can get away with this stuff too. Oh yeah, where yeah. they Dan, like yeah. uh, think about Deacon Blues. Oh and yeah, the chord progression that like the 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 sneaky stuff in there, and then they put a G major thirteen, I think, in uh, in uh, uh, Kid Charlemagne. Which is yeah. like, who puts a G major thirteen in pop music? Yeah, you. If you listen to the vocal, so there's a vocal harmony there that's going on in Kid Kid Charlemagne. Oh it's yeah, just uh, it, that's yeah, that's incredible. It's from another planet. <laughs> it's from another planet. It's like it shouldn't. This shouldn't have been written work. by humans. <laughs> like there's yeah. no way. Um, yeah, it wouldn't work otherwise. And, and how? They found a popular following. I mean, you could not turn on radio at that time without hear, hearing FM, Black Friday, Kid Charlemagne. I mean, Deacon those, Blues. Those songs, Deacon Blues. I don't think that they wrote those with like, oh, you know what? We're going to make a hit. No, Deacon, no. You know. It was that, that was incidental. That was like when they realized, when they, it's almost like they did the first record and then it was sort of successful because it wasn't super successful. Um, right. that they were kind of like, oh, well, we can make a run of this. Like people are actually interested in this, like music that we want to make. And so then they start making stuff that just sort of like gets more and more successful. And the funnier part about it is the more successful they get, the farther off the reservation they went. I mean, you think about like Katie lied and, um, even even uh, the Royal Scam, which has some of the like the jazz stuff on it, that was the first one I think they did with the full like the full like session band really, um, all the way out to Gaucho, which is actually the second time oh, that yeah. album was made. They made that album twice because they because yeah. they destroyed the first copy on accident. Yep, they didn't like it or um, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they actually. Yep. I think they. I think they ended up recording over it or something. It, there was some or the band that can't no they left the recordings in the studio and the band that came after them actually recorded over their uh their masters that's right and so they just said no and and they actually went back and re-recorded the record and it actually destroyed them they couldn't get along together and that was the end of steely dan yep. for a long time um that yeah um so don't take me alive. That's another yep. one that's got some weird, weird stuff. I used to play that in a band. Uh, mm -hmm. We covered that song. People loved it. Yeah, but let me tell a, you that's something. That's a good song. Yeah, it is. That's, the pool. Boy. And I sang and played that. I can tell you right now. <laughs> that, that's the one that's about the pool boy, right? Um, if yeah. I recall. Yeah, that's that. That record's great. Uh, that's off Royal Scam yep. for sure. That's off the Royal um, Scam. Yep. Caves of Altamira is on there, and um, I'm trying to think what yep. other songs are on there that are really good. Um, I was just looking up their list and I'm like, holy crap. It was so many big 
Josie, Babylon Sisters. Yeah. That's another one that's got a vocal harmony that's just, you know, that Babylon Sisters, yep. shake it. You know, that that whole thing. Yeah, and they've you arranged the, the vocals harmony. almost like a horn section. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know who was a uh, contemporary of that, was doing a lot of that weird stuff that um, was uh, the guys from Alan Parsons Project was doing a lot of weird stuff like that. Sure. They were really going out there. Um, but I think that's because they were, they came from sort of the progressive direction, right? Like they were yeah. coming back towards pop music. And I kind of feel like Steely Dan went the opposite direction. Opposite direction. Yeah. It yeah. was like they were, they were already tuned into jazz, but they were writing pop music. And then they slowly started to get more and more jazz oriented. And it was funny because when they did come back in the nineties, like they went right back to their roots, which is the yeah. funny part. It's like they had to start over. Yeah, well, you take yeah, you take. Um, uh, so uh, we were. Um, I was talking about the Alan Parsons project. You take the song that is um, uh, what is it called? Serious. Um, that that opens just about every basketball game that yeah. you've ever been to, right? Uh, and I know the L.A. Lakers use it, um, and that goes into uh, Eye in the Sky. But if you take the song "Games People Play," um, that's got. That's got harmonies and, and stuff that, that just blow your mind. Early uh, early ELO, before um, before the Discovery album and the whole disco thing, um, was another band that really took it out there. Um, but something happened to the guy that was the um, the real, because uh, everybody thinks it was Jeff Lynne, and there was, a, I can't remember, I think it was the cellist that was the real um, uh, brains behind the outfit that was really writing the crazy, weird stuff that they did in the beginning. It's funny. Um, Excuse me. So if you take a if you take a step back, like in the '60s, there was all forms of music were valid, right? Um, right. So, for example, like at Woodstock, you had Shanana, which we've talked about right. them before on the show. Yeah. You had yeah. Shanana on stage with like Carlos Santana and Jimi Hendrix right. and uh, Country Who, Joe and the Fish. Country Joe yep. and the Fish. I don't think the Grateful did the Grateful Dead actually perform at Woodstock, or did they not get I there? I thought they. I thought they did. I they may I have. The I, I don't remember. Dead. I'd have to go look it up. But anyway, I know they were there. <clears throat> but the whole point is like you have this variety of bands, right? And these guys yeah. were all big at the time, or or became big at because of Woodstock, like after the fact. And you compare and contrast that with as little as fifteen years later, not even fifteen, like late seventies, right? When disco was the thing, um, and it's it's really kind of shocking that you went from bands like. Yes, Genesis. Um, uh, what's the other one? Um, Gentle Giant. With these like progressive bands to like ELO, because that was really the like the this is the art rock music that existed at yeah. that time, and then it just kind of shrunk down to this like narrow hole until until Rush, you know. Well, yeah, um, I mean, a lot of those bands. ELO was an example. Um, another example was uh, Chicago Transit Authority, which became Chicago. Um, in the beginning, oh, those yeah, first no. two albums, Chicago was incredible. Their music was mm -hmm. just great. And then they put out uh, what was that? Uh, um, Don't hurt me or whatever that was. And then and then Peter Cetera happened. And well, Peter Cetera, I mean, that's <laughs> he was the high voice behind that thing the whole time. The problem was, as soon as they let him not have to play bass all the time, that's when they took it away and. It, Good Lord, help well, us. Well, I mean, they had no choice. Uh, they did lose. Hard to say I'm sorry. That's the one. Yeah. It's hard to say I'm sorry. Oh, God, no. No, stop. 
but no, so they, you know, and, and Chicago is close to her. Obviously I live in the Chicagoland area. So everybody yeah. likes Chicago here. I don't think I've ever run into somebody who's like, I hate Chicago. Um, well, at that time you still had a, a real, there was still a real, um, uh, jazz and, and big band presence. Well, so, I think for Chicago though, like they're, they're the interesting thing about them was they were fusing psychedelic music with that. Right. Right. Yeah, they were re- they were fusing psychedelic jazz, funk, and um, uh, of course rock. Yeah, oh, um, and pop. I would say everything they did was basically yeah. around a pop framework, like the idea that yeah. they were going to sell these songs too. Twenty five or six two four, you know that type of thing, definitely. Um, but you take um, just to put things in perspective, you could sit on any given weeknight, and you would have either Hee Haw, which was country, um, you would have uh, Lawrence Welk. You would have um, uh, the uh, American Bandstand, which was pop, right? Lawrence Welk was big band. Um, you had jazz. There was, there was still um, any any of the uh, uh, whether you were watching Donnie and Marie or Tony Share or you know um, any of these other uh, shows. They had all of these people on, um, and so there was still a mixture. Um, so our sensibilities as a as a country and as a whole um, was still all over the place. And I think um, if I remember right, uh, the guys that created Hee Haw were actually kind of doing a joke on like Lawrence Welk or uh, that that kind of thing. So- sounds legit. <laughs> yes, like it was supposed to be satirical, and it wound up being a big hit. Um, but the point that I'm making is that that if you were growing up, like you you are you were born when eighty six, eighty five. I was born in eighty four. Eighty four, Jesus. Jim, I was three years old and I saw Air Supply. Yeah, yeah, I was twenty three. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, when. Uh, when you're sitting out there and you're able to 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 absorb all that kind of music, it's all it's all there because your mom and dad have um, they have a uh, who's that guy Dean Martin album or they have a uh, you know a Sammy Davis Jr. album and they have Frank Sinatra music and you know so on and so forth. You had that kind of thing because your parents were a little older, right? I had country music and that was all. I like honestly, I did the, the few records I got I got when I was like. 15 or 16 years old from them. They were like vinyl because they had this big stack of vinyl records, right? But we never we never listened to any of it. We never went through any of it. And then we were starting to go through it and I found a Cream record and I found, yep. um, there were some other things, but it was, but basically like the one Cream record in that collection was the one that kind of surprised me because almost everything else was either Beatles or it was, yep. um, I think there was, uh, Whiter Shade of Pale was in there. Um, oh, the, yeah. The Procol Harum record. My dad dad had worn that record out more than once. And then they listened to a lot of like film soundtracks and they had a lot of country music, Um, which my mom was big into country Western. I don't think my dad really just didn't have that many records. Most of the stuff he listened to was like early sixties pop music, Uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders and stuff like that, Um, which I never really got the exposure to because he was always listening to oldies radios. Like just never really happened. Um, and later on, 
uh, as I started getting into music, a lot of the bands that I listened to were like bands that were probably popular when they were growing up. They just did, they right. just completely missed. And it was funny because like they were discovering these bands at the same time I was. Yeah. When you were, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's like, wait, you mean that's Led Zeppelin? Like, yeah, dad, you were alive when this band was popular. Like what the hell? <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's what was so going on. It's literally what was like, going I, on. I thought it was all um, stairway to heaven. I remember. Okay, so here's here's a classic example, right? I got the uh, the Rock and Rio uh, DVD from uh, uh, Iron Maiden, and uh, I was watching upstairs, and my dad comes up and he like sits down. And he's like, "Who's this?" And I'm like, "This is Iron Maiden." He's like, "That's Iron Maiden." I'm like, "Yeah," and he's like, "Man, he's like that sounds really cool," and I looked yeah. at him and I was like, "You were alive when this band was really popular." I'm like, "They're still yeah. popular now, but," um, and He's like, yeah, but he's like, I wouldn't listen to them. And it just like, kind of dawned on me. I'm like, wow, you sheltered yourself really bad. You know, like, this is yeah. ridiculous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I was lucky enough that that my parents had both Dolly Parton um, and the Beatles and, you know, Elvis. But they also had uh, uh, Eric Clapton and yeah, Cream. I, mean, I got, I know, got my and, fair share of Elvis. I mean, I just didn't get any, like, I didn't get The Doors. I didn't get, cr I got Cream, the one record. I didn't get, um hardly anything else out of them um which just you know that just it was all like vicariously through my brother had a couple of records that i was really interested in as a kid um mostly the ones that were like all about drugs that made me laugh because i was like yeah. drugs are bad you know drugs uh, obviously i don't yeah. do drugs now but i would laugh because i would be like oh what are they singing about we'd be listening to like you know jefferson airplane or something it's like the white rabbit, you know, and he's like, yeah, one pill makes you larger. Yeah, he's like, he's like, small. well, they're singing about drugs. And I'm like, oh, all right. This is funny oh, because like, it yeah. just seems ridiculous to me. But, yeah. um, so, you know, I got into all that stuff. And, and when I first got my guitar, like, then I started seeking out that music. I went and bought Doors records. I bought, um, Surrealistic Pillow. I bought, uh, and I was getting all the stuff used. Like I was going to use stores and buying it. And right. Jimi Hendrix and all that stuff. And I, I actually, the first recording of this episode, we talked about that, was that even that music, like I was exposed to other people my age who were listening to that music, which was crazy to me. Like I'd go and I'd, I'd be talking to somebody in the hall and I, I forget who it was, but he was listening to a CD player. And I asked him, I said, who are you listening to? And he's like, Jimmy. And I'm like, Jimmy who? And he's like, Hendrix. And I looked at him and I was like, oh, all right, I need to go home and get that record. You know, and like I, I, and I, I literally went home and I got the record, you know, like I went and I bought it. Um, and it, and it, I already knew Jimi Hendrix, but I'd never listened to the record like as a whole context, you know? Um, and that was part of like me becoming an informed musician. I kind of exhausted the stuff that I could play easily. And then I started getting interested in like what had come before that was not easy, right? That people had a good yep. reputation for. Um, and, so I discovered like Pink Floyd and um, I would turn my nose up at bands like that when I first got into school. I was like, why are you interested in something that happened like 50 years ago in the context of music? I mean, I get history. Like I'm a history buff, but oh yeah, now, I'm just saying, uh, now it's all different, right? Like I have a totally different outlook. Being a musician I'll be honest with me. You. So the first time I heard uh, Pink Floyd, um, it was, it was, I want to say it was wish you were here metal. I think, um, but, um, no, it would have been, it would have been uh, dark side of the moon. And then, um, my, my aunt says, Oh, you like Pink Floyd? 
listen to this. And she pulled out saucer full of secrets. Oh, yeah, right, right. That naturally. Went, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, naturally. Because you're like, what? <laughs> I was like, you know, you know, oh, I've got a bike. You can ride it if right? you'd like. It's got a basket to bell and make the things that make it look good. <laughs> What's that? Arnold Lang and stuff or, like that. Yeah, Arnold Lang had a strange or or uh, Eugene, be careful with that axe. Ah! I've you know still I mean? been trying to figure out like how they got some of those guitar sounds on that record. Oh, and that's all on a Telecaster. Yeah, it's like a Telecaster through, like through a, a Fender, Fender Twin. twin yeah, like a cracked yeah. up Fender Twin. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, um, but not one that's like pushed to the brink like Johnny Winter style. One that's like on the verge of like farting out and exploding. <laughs> it's like right weird sound. Um. That's a yeah. She great she showed me saucer full of secrets and Piper is at the gates of dawn, and I was like, "What in the holy heck is this?" Um, you know, it was it was definitely not the Pink Floyd I knew that was doing money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of bands like that. So, like, you know, I'm a big Genesis fan, and their first record, which has been reprinted, um, is like piano and vocal yeah and like very little drums it's called from genesis to revelation and it's really it's literally a retelling of the bible um and it is the weirdest record in context with even the next record they put out which is like full rock band you know with the knife and stuff on it and um i just remember like when i got from genesis because i was collecting i have i have literally every genesis um cd I think at one point I don't have them all now, but I at one point I had every Genesis CD, Genesis CD that had been printed in U.S. and foreign markets. So I had like a binder of like 200 CDs that was literally just all like, and a lot of it was duplicates. It was the same thing, but it was like a different master or whatever. Um, right. And I I remember when I got that record, I I got three different copies of it, and I remember thinking like, there's got to be a different version of it. This sounds more like the band. <laughs> and then just kept yeah. listening and being like, what the hell? Like, this is weird. Um, and that's the same thing that you probably experienced when you heard that, you know, saucer full of secrets or whatever. And yeah. you're like, what? <laughs> and then there's a song called Jug Band Blues on Saucer Full of Secrets. And I went, what in the holy heck? So, so when you listen to um, uh, Pipers at the Gates of Dawn, the first song on there is See Emily Play. Yep. And it's the weirdest tune. Sounds like a helicopter in the beginning, right? If I yeah, recall. Yeah, because you're, you're like, well, oh, this is supposed to be a nice, lighthearted tone. And it's not a lighthearted song. They all. were really like, how do you put it? If for that time, they were like a mod band. Very yep. much so. Like hard British rock. And I would say that they even like bordered on bands like The Who for like the noise factor and just yep. the aggressiveness. Um, and then very quickly they became like um a very thinking man's music right um which is a kind of like diametric opposition which is why i think that's so jarring for a band like that but you know we've seen other bands do that think about judas priest oh yeah judas priest early days when they were like like basically hippies yeah you know <laughs> versus like hellbent for leather you know, motorcycles, giant Marshall stacks, guys and yep. guys and spikes and leather, and guys and spikes and leather, and yeah, it, and it's always been one of the hilarious things when uh, when Ralph when Rob Halford came out of the closet. He goes, he goes, 
what you couldn't tell yeah like (laughs) i i I, I know right that's like in retrospect it's like the most obvious thing in the world but look at the nobody realized it yeah everybody was like i thought it just was like a thing you picked for the music no he knew where to get all this stuff like (laughs) every teenage kid i remember i was one of them going to those shows was dressing like yeah they had like the the, wristbands and like the yeah wristbands with the things on i mean come on carrie king turned it into nails coming out of his wristbands but yeah um yeah it was it it was a lot of fun and it I think, you know, it, uh, uh, there is there is definitely um, something to be said about the fact that the culture didn't care. You know what I mean? Um, the same kids that the same kids that sat down and listened to Judas Priest were listening to Art Garfunkel and they were listening to the Brothers Johnson. Yeah. You know, and so, uh, you know, well, Simon and Garfunkel but, um, and, and Pink Floyd and stuff like that. So there was very little um, of that, you know, oh, I hate this kind of music, I hate that kind of music. There's a, there's definitely a, um, a change there, but uh, yeah, I, I do miss that. Okay. We're, we're going to try to do, I, I was talking to Dan Kish. Uh, we're going to try to do some listening uh, parties. So people that want to get in on it, um, we're going to start doing that and, and we'll start exposing each other and our, and, and uh, you know, the group to some music that we otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't hear you know what i mean yeah i'm looking i'm looking to see if i can find some young jace priest pictures to show on the uh the video here oh um, my god yeah because i there's a there's an old live performance um unleashed in the east is that what it is yep the album was unleashed in the east when was, uh, the, uh, when was that look at the cover look at the cover of unleashed in the east that's all you need to see oh no that's but that's later when they're in the when they're in the leather I'm talking oh. about before. Oh, you're that. talking about before that. When okay. he had, when he was, was like, say, that's one of the guys was wearing like the a big, I think it was like Glenn Tipton or somebody was wearing like the big yeah. farmer hat with a big, hat. big thing of straw yeah. sticking out of his straw. mouth, and I'm going, this isn't Judas Priest. Like, what the hell yeah. is this? He's wearing jeans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, you got to go before that. Uh, um, Unleashed in the East is probably my favorite Judas Priest album yeah. of all time. That's got the Green Man Alishi. That's got all the good stuff on it. Uh, the definitely the rockin' version of uh, Diamonds and Rust. Yeah, you know, I'll be damned. Oh, that's a that's a killer song. That's right. a, and what's funny is they took a Joan Baez song, but that's the first time he rode out on the motorcycle. Well, that first tour where he uh, okay. took the motorcycle out on tour. This, this should leather. work for us. Uh, let me see if I can get my the right screen to show up here. Uh, bear with me. Uh, that one right there. You know, it looks like the, I I I see this band and I think, is that Judas Priest or is that like um, Peter yeah. Frampton's band? Yeah, <laughs> like that's kind of what I like. What? Wait, what? There's an even better one up in the corner here. Like, KK Downing is apparently in this photo. <laughs> like I I couldn't even recognize him at that point. Um, but yeah, it doesn't get more seventies with the green background and all of that. Like, it's very, very funny. And, you know, Robin Alford, you know, Oh, when you're, when they're playing in San Antonio. Yeah. Oh, I, I, you can't see that. I keep forgetting that I've got OBS and you can't see it. Yeah, that's okay. I'm looking at a, at a photo of him playing in San Antonio and, uh, holy God, this is, this is hilarious. 
KK Downing's got his uh, his signature blonde hair and and, uh, and flying V, and um, he's got just a wild shirt on with red, big red pants and high high white blue boots on. Does he have the Does he have the big uh, the big hat? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> I'm trying to pull up. There's another photo that I found somewhere else. I'll share in the video if I can. No, apparently it's not big enough. It's like a, it's like a thumbnail. But they got the big hat in that photo. I really wanted to show it, but whatever. Um, yep. Yeah, it was like farmer hat, you know. They were, yeah, they were still trying to find their they style. They just didn't They're know more... what they were going to look like, and they knew that they had to be different. And so they were, you know, they were exploring the the fashion stuff of it, and um, they settled on the uh, the leathers and and uh, chains and stuff. Which is oh yeah crazy to me because because I think they actually thought it was like motorcycle aesthetic. Yep. And I mean, yeah, they were motorcycle riders wear leather, but it's not bondage gear. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I've never seen a motorcycle rider with like polished leather. Yeah. <laughs> Where it's like no. shi- like a mirror finish. That's that's totally like gimp outfit there. That's like Pulp Fiction guy stored in a box kind of stuff. Well, that that kind of reminds me. Have you ever seen that first um, uh, video of uh, of Black Sabbath for Iron Man? It's just like this acid trip video. Yeah. Well, a lot of that stuff was and, was like the old whistle, old gray whistle test, and like um, yep, uh, that one probably would have been Beat Club. Yeah. And, and so Ozzy's just standing there at the microphone with the with the <laughs> uh, the crazy psychedelic just pushing the hair. Yeah, this this crazy psychedelic backdrop. He's just constantly pulling his hair out of his yeah, face. Yeah, well, I mean, what the else are you going to do with got... hair as long as it stick straight hair and it's like three feet long? <laughs> Yours is not three feet long, Jim. <laughs> Mine isn't three feet long again yet, but yeah, it, yeah, he <laughs> he's got that. Uh, He's got that hair going on. It's just so funny to watch him, you know. And uh, um, you know, it, he will be missed when he finally passes. Yeah, um, it's gonna. It's not, not gonna be long. waiting it's, for him to pass, but I. I don't. I. I don't have high hopes for him. Um, he's. I know he just did that album, but it was of kind health. of a swan song. He's got a lot of health problems. He's. Yeah. Um, and I'm not gonna speak about you know like I don't know actually his health situation, but it would appear to me that he has a lot of health problems. He's suffered with addiction for years and has and has done horrible things to his body, um, and I just can't imagine somebody like that soldiering on forever. Um, hopefully, you know um, he gets to stick around as long as you know he, as long as God allows. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it would not shock me to wake up tomorrow and hear that Ozzy's passed because he's just he's like I said, uh, no one has abused their body quite the way that some of those guys in the seventies did. Oh yeah, yeah. Ozzy, probably um, one of the top <laughs> for abuse. People, people <laughs> joke around about uh, um, Keith Richards, but come on, Eric Clapton was just self-destructive. I would love you to know, we s- see Ozzy and Keith Richards square off in the ring. That would be hilarious. <laughs> they they could both guys. break their arms off and beat each other to death with them. They, they, they just have tea. Yeah, they probably would. And talk shit. Maybe I mean, that's, that's what they would do. Yep. That would be that would be the thing. Um, so, you know, we talked about that. One of the things that we talked about that uh, let's let's go back to guitar here, tone and stuff. So, speaking of Clapton, we talked about um, we talked about Clapton, Cream, and all that stuff. Sure. Um, 
because I think, oh yeah, we were talking about what was the first riff you you really learned? What did remember? I say it was? I don't remember because now I'm like thinking about it and I don't remember what it was. Because I had mentioned um, like Clapton and Cream and that. I think the first riff I learned was Iron Man. It was Iron Man. Iron Man? Yeah. It was Iron Man. And Jim's going to play his first riff for us, I'm sure. No, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to play... I'm just going to play a piece of a song that I learned. Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. You got to tell him the age. <laughs> well, actually, that was a later riff. That was a lot later. Uh, you know. Oh, well, I thought I you mean, were... come on. Well, the first song I think I really, like, uh, learned all the way through was... What's funny is I uh, later I learned the harmony chords to that. Yeah, and 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 uh, learned how to how to write you know or work with the harmony chords. But um, it's one of those songs you don't real. That's one of the ones I was saying. You know, you don't realize that you're playing the wrong thing on one side or the other. But I think, believe it or not, the first song I learned how to play uh, was was um, uh, I don't know if it was. If it was, it's one of the first ones I learned how, or, or that I can remember, that I played, and I don't remember how old it is. I think it's nineteen seventy, early seventies. But uh, uh, it was American Pie. Yeah, I know my mom listens to this, so I'm going to tell the story about about learning uh, Iron Man as my first song. Sure. Um, so I had been clued into to uh, Black Sabbath. Um, a little bit before that because other people were wearing Black Sabbath t-shirts and stuff at school and I was like, yeah, I gotta check them out because like, there's gotta be something there. I've never heard any of their music. Like, why is it so mysterious? And actually, the whole idea of a Black Sabbath kind of turned me off to it because I was like, I don't really want to be the guy that's listening to all the, the Satan right, the music. the devil music. The devil yeah. music, ooh. right? Uh, ooh. So anyway, um, later on, of course, I found out the whole story about the name and everything and like, it put in perspective, this is, I'm... 13, 14 years old this time. So I'm kind of naive. Um, and I, I, I start listening to Black Sabbath, whatever. And I get, uh, I get the reunion album. Cause that was the thing when I was a kid. Right. Um, yeah, and of it's okay. Like it, there, there's nothing really wrong with it except for the drummer isn't the right drummer. Um, yeah. <laughs> long story on that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I, actually, I think he may have been on there for some of it, but he wasn't on there for all of it. Like there's like a whole, it's, it's a weird thing. Anyway, um, I see guitar world right after I get my first guitar, I see guitar yep. world has a transcription of Iron Man. And so I learned Iron Man. And, uh, part of the reason I, I liked Black Sabbath, but I wasn't like in love with Black Sabbath at that time. And it was funny because I saw the song and I went, that song sounds metal as hell. And I know that I'm really not like my parents really didn't buy me a guitar for me to play metal. So I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. And I honestly like there were a couple times growing up where my mom would come and she'd be like, you're listening to this crap. And like, you're going to learn to play this on guitar or whatever. And like, it's just crap. It just I didn't buy a guitar for you to play this kind of junk. And, uh, and I just totally, I would get pissed at her and pretend like I was going to quit playing guitar, but like in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Like, <laughs> right. Like <laughs> that was the kind of attitude. It was the rebelliousness. Like, no, it does suck and you don't like it. And therefore that's what I'm going to learn. And to that's do. what I'm going to learn. Yeah. Um, 
And and it's so funny because like growing Quite up, natural. I, that happened during uh during Rage Against. The, I was listening to a, a a live album from Rage Against the Machine or something, and she was like, "This sounds like crap," and I didn't buy a guitar to hear this kind of noise and this garbage. Actually, the deal was, Jim, I was watching it and she was vacuuming, so I turned the TV up, and she got pissed off because it was yeah. like you turned the TV up over my vacuum. And I wanted to yeah. be like, you're vacuuming while I'm watching TV. Like, what the hell are you doing? Right, um, right. There's a lot of butting heads in my house. People are deciding to do things that just totally do not mesh well with others. Um, and and she would vacuum like every day. Uh, she's still a bit of a neat freak. Um, but she has a spotless house, so can't complain. Um, yep. But I cannot I just, say the same. It was just funny because like a lot of that is what drove me to learn stuff like that was this whole idea that my parents didn't like this, so I'm going to go check it out now. Or my parents don't know anything about this, so I'm going to go check it out. And that's how I got into to Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin, um, Deep Purple, Jimi Hendrix, all these different artists that my parents were not into, like to go back to what we were talking about earlier. So learning that riff is probably the most useless part of information you could possibly learn as a, as a kid, except, and, I, and, I, and I'll put this in, in perspective. So when I learned it, I learned it at the 12th fret like you're supposed to, right? That's the that's the Tony Iommi approved way. Right, I know right, right. Randy Rhodes didn't play it that way, and I know um, Jackie Lee didn't play it that way. I think Zach might actually play it correctly, but um, I would not be surprised if he doesn't play it at the 7th fret. Um and the reason why it's so interesting that I learned it the correct way was because the first song I learned to play, when you stop and you think about the idiosyncrasies of putting the notes in a specific place on the neck and the explanation that went along with the tab explaining why you did it and the light bulb went on in my head about tone being important and him yep. selecting that and that was like everything I did from that moment on was like this is an interpretation of what someone else has done and I don't have to sound like everybody else, but I can choose what I, whether I want to do. And that therefore that makes me perform their music in my own way. And I, that's when I became like an interpretive guitarist in the sense that I wasn't so concerned about playing with a, what other, the way other people did. I realized that there were conscious decisions being made about that and that I could make those decisions too. Um Yeah. That's how I learned interpretive dance. Yeah. No, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim, could you show us some of your interpretive dance? We do have video tonight. Yeah, strike a pose. <laughs> Kid, play. We did my no. duck face. Oh yeah, don't so, ever do that again, yeah. guys. All right, so um. Yeah, so we we got to get into the uh, – someone had said we're starting to get towards the end of the show. I just And we got to do some housekeeping. But before that, I want to talk about uh, one thing. We have a Teespring shop. By the way, there's a um, – Threadless. There should be. Threadless. Thread, threadless. Thank you. Threadless. We have a Threadless Maybe shop. Maybe I'll make a Teespring shop too. You should. But anyway, um, <laughs> we we have a Threadless store. Um, I, I'm going to get myself a coffee mug. But uh, – this week, so I have it for next week. Um, hopefully, depending on how long it takes to ship. But anyway, um, I uh, I know we have a uh, Patreon page. Please Patreon us. One of the things that one of the listeners was asking is, uh, can you guys uh, challenge each other to play a song um, in in each other's styles? 
And well, that so, would be even funnier than what we were proposing the other night. Yes. Was if I was to give you the like one of the chords. I should give you – because I have all the backing tracks for my stuff. I should give you yeah, a backing you, track from one of my songs. Well, one of yours, yeah. And then you should give and, me a backing track from one of yours or something that you know you play regularly. So I'm going to – yeah. So I'm going to give David this song that we all know and we have all played – let me see if I can do it sitting this way. It is difficult for me to play in this position, by the way. But uh, so I was going to have him do. The funny part is I already know how to play the riff. Yeah, he probably does. So um, I was I was messing with it today. Let's just say that on acoustic it's harder to play the same chord shapes. Yeah, they're up is. here. Yeah. <laughs> Those last chord shapes are up here. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. A lot different, folks. Challenge accepted. I'm going to try to do it on... on um, uh, I'm going to try to double it. Okay. So I'm going to do it on a Strat and either the SG or the Les Paul. All right. And then I'm going to add the acoustic to it. And you, you got to put the drums over it. You want me to put drums on it and you want me to put a lead guitar part on it, right? You're going to put a yeah, I'll put I'll put one of the solos on, but you can always play okay. over it and then the other one. So, now, I don't know if you had a chance to to listen to that uh, thing I put in by the Band Geeks. I did. But so I that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to like my comment on it. I haven't read, read the comments. That's one of my favorite songs, and I just I I listened to it. And I was like, "You missed the groove," like like deeply. I was just like, "Damn it!" <laughs> I wanted it to be yeah. so good. I wanted it to be so good. I did, and I was just like, yeah. "No, this is not you how you do this." The, the band geeks are yeah, they're really good. They, no, dude, they're really good. In fact, uh, their yes awesome. covers are spot on. Um, and I'm a big fan yeah. of their yes covers. So when they were, I saw they were doing Sledgehammer. I was like, "Oh, yes." Yes, and then I watched about two minutes of it. I was like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, you got to remember that their sensibilities are also in pop and in, uh, of course, of course, Richie's Richie plays with Blue Oyster Cult, but well, no, 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 uh, I, and right, and and I think they do Anne appreciate is more it. Of a, I just don't think that like the whole band. I think probably Richie probably knew how it was supposed to go, but I feel yeah. like the rest of the band was just playing it straight, and that's yeah. that old school like funk right. feel that has this really deep groove and I just didn't feel it when if you're playing sledgehammer and you're not going like this the whole yeah. time then you're doing it wrong no. <laughs> you know, like, I just did, I just missed it and that, and that bass better be the loudest thing in, in the band like that's the other thing um, yeah and I, and I was losing it there um, not that their bass player I, I've heard him play a no, lot he's, of stuff he's it, exceptional he's, he's spot on but I think that there was something missing and, and it, you gotta remember Ann is uh as far as a vocalist goes, Anne is um, uh, trained in um, classical and uh, you know, like Broadway type stuff. She's quite good. I, I don't know. Stuff. I've never had a negative I, interpretation. Yeah, no. I think she's done, but no, it just it just wasn't right. It wasn't what we were expecting. I would. I wanted. I wanted. Real it, sh- it felt like a show tunes. It should have felt like Stax and Volt rhythm is what it should have sounded like because that's what that song yet, is an ode to. Yet, if you listen to them do Aces High with. Uh, that was stellar, and I was surprised how well Bumblefoot played that or sang that song. Yeah, I knew he's he a great play. singer. He's a great singer, actually. Believe he it or not, sing his butt off. Oh yeah, dude, wow. you should get some of his records. Uh, he's freaking psychotic with how good he is on vocals. It's crazy. He, 
He is crazy good. I, re- I reckon I recommend Abby Normal. Um, yeah. And there's <laughs> Abby Normal. That's, that's one of, the, my that's one of the name of the songs. Yeah. And then there's another record. Uh, let, reach out to me. I'll give you the other record because they're because they're both great. And and he does a lot of vocals on them. And the crazy thing is, if you've ever seen him live, he does. Vo- I I haven't seen him live, but I've seen enough live footage. He does the vocals while he's playing some of these songs, and you just can't believe that he's doing both at the same time. It's unbelievable. It, it it it's like he has a part of his brain is separated. The part that yeah. controls the vocals is totally separate from the part that controls guitar. <laughs> it's like two people living in one body. It's it's nuts. Uh, it is incredible. It's inhuman. But you, but yeah, I've heard them do roundabout and they kill roundabout it. Uh, close to the edge is the one that gets me though. Close to the edge. Close they to just the edge did is a, one of the hardest songs you could possibly play, and they just nail it. Yep, and they um, did Starship. Star. Yeah, Starship, Starship Troopers. Uh, I want to hear them do the Black Page. Oh, that would be because cool. I'm pretty sure they you should could reach probably out play to Richie it. and say, "Yeah, I should, yeah. I should reach out to Richie and be like, hey, guys, you can do some, can can do some zap. Do can you do the black page? How about today's yeah, they, they used to do um, like a live request show, um, and Richie would do live requests. He'd do yeah, right um, I think a lot of the Zappa music is like unapproachable for a lot of people, though, because like I said, that song "Titties and Beer," for example, like. Even yeah. the name is like sexist, misogynist, like to the extreme. And you got to remember this, the context of the era in, the, in which that stuff was written. And you don't necessarily have to agree with Frank to appreciate it. Um, so that's why I kind of like give him a pass on certain things. Um, and well, I, people forget that sometimes it's a – it's not necessarily Frank's feelings. It's what Frank is observing. The Like – the other day, uh, I'm driving I think, I think down Frank, the road, right? I think Frank was a – he was he, not a misogynist, but saying. I think he was he was a little bit more in line with his lyrics than, than yeah. many people realize. But, um, as long as he didn't eat the yellow snow. Yeah. Um, um, but <laughs> but uh, there, there was a um, – I was driving down the road, and uh, there's a gentleman's club on the left-hand side of the road, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and – a guy pulls out from his driveway in his truck, right? And it's big white trash truck. And he passes me. And what is what does he have in the back window? Um, blankies B zero zero B I E S. Okay, make me smile. <laughs> and he's got that with like two uh, of those things, like. In in like a, a in the sticker, and I don't so, know if the video caught me sighing hard enough there. And it was no, but it was and it was the timing of it because we're just passing a place called Headlights. Yes, it's called Headlights, folks. And that that and and it just and did he cut you that, off to go in there because that's that that would have made the story that much. No, he didn't. Go, they're, they they've got a big thing. We're close. Stay safe. But it's just yeah, funny sure. that this guy lives right right across the road. I'm like, yeah. well. I wonder, where, I wonder where he works. He's their biggest patron. <laughs> yeah, he might work my, there. My sons were laughing their butts off there. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah that guy's that guy's definitely that's his home. But anyway, it was it's just one of those things that I I thought that would be funny to write about because that's that's funny. Yeah, right? but I think a lot. Yeah, exactly. And I I do think there's a lot of stuff in his music. Um, there's one song in particular I'm thinking off of Man from Utopia, and if you know the record, you probably know the one I'm talking about. That is totally observational, and it's gross and it's disgusting, but it's totally yep. observational, and it's meant it's played for for comedy. Um, oh yeah. But I mean, you know, we're talking about a guy that wrote a song called Dangerous Kitchen. 
Yeah. Just literally like Happens. scanning over how dangerous the kitchen is. Kitchen is. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, <laughs> pretty much. Um, yeah, I don't know. So I don't know. We didn't talk a whole lot about guitar. We talked a lot about music tastes this episode. Um, did you have any like specific guitar commentary? Actually, we're talking about songs you want to do, right? So like I could give you one of my backing tracks and have you yeah. play over that. Um, yeah, that's going to be well, The other thing we should do is we should probably pick one track that's kind of like middle ground. I think we were talking about that last week. We should do Aces High. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aces High. And, like that'd be fun. Yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll go back and forth. Maybe we'll get that done or not. And but at least I'll I'll do the Barracuda thing for sure. Um, and I'm sure I can give you my backing tracks. So that's not a big deal. Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll sing over it. I'll probably have to re- layer my voice like fifteen times. You'll have to come up with a lead line. I'm not giving you any of my guitar parts. You're just gonna have to figure it out and muddle through it. Oh, you're talking about the one you sent me? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna it. give you. I'm literally gonna, gonna give you like up. drums and bass. Yeah, and you just be like, wait, Here you gotta you go. give me some harmony. You're not gonna give me harmony. You can't get that from the bass. That it basically, out- you'll hear, it'll outline it'll outline chords. Okay. You'd be like, all right, okay, I kind of get it. Or even if it's just the vaguest outline of chords, you can kind of build right. around it. Yeah, yeah, that I can do. I think that makes it more interesting is like you can see what – we can see what kind of harmony comes out of like your interpretation of with. what my baseline was. Cause, yeah. Because I can guarantee you it ain't going to be like mine. <laughs> uh, my harmony no is like bordering on no harmony. <laughs> this will let everybody know that is the sheet music to Barracuda. For- <laughs> yeah, he's using the charts. I'm like I, – I, he's like, learn to play – he's like, can you learn to play Barracuda? I'm like, Yeah. I mean, I'm not uh, even thinking yeah, about charts. I, I'm just thinking about, yeah, I can probably, yeah, I'm thinking about the. Well, body. I'm charting it because that. I'm I'm playing two guitar parts and a, and a, um, singing the all the vocals. Just as long as I get to lay a solo down on there, that's all I really want to do. And then you're gonna be like, that was not what I expected. <laughs> that's that's kind of where I'm going with it. So, um, but yeah, no, it sounds like a fun exercise, and maybe we'll show it yeah. off in the group. And uh, I want to get um, a roundtable going for the group too, but I just I haven't figured yeah. that out yet. So somebody in the yeah, uh, we got to get group. somebody who. Well, I know Mike Mara would be somebody who could be able to. I don't know if he'd be willing, but be able to throw some stuff down over one of our um, one of our song choices as well. And yeah, of course, no, I'm he's sure a, he would he would love to throw something he at is us. Monstrous, uh, too. I will I will tell you that I, don't, I have been on stage with him. Um, yeah, he is. He yeah, is oh yeah, I've seen the recordings. Real deal. He's legit. Um, yeah. His band. Uh, so to give you an idea of what he's doing, Jim, his band is doing a tribute to Jeff Beck. Like they are a Jeff Beck tribute band right now. Uh, it's it's a trio that does Jeff Beck tunes and it's quite good. They play like Nadia and stuff. It's it, yeah. It throw rotten food at me. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, and, and he's quite good at it too. Like he, he sent me throwing a, rotten food. <laughs> that too. Yeah. Um, he looks like he's a big guy. So I, I think he could be, yeah. I think he could throw a decent fastball. Um, anyway, uh, he was showing me some clips of him doing, uh, rehearsing or actually, no, I think these were live clips, uh, from the board of his last show. And he was some of the Jeff Beck tunes and he's doing all the whammy bar stuff and all that. And I'm like, dude, like, <laughs> it's like, it makes me want to quit. Cause he, cause yeah. he, you know, he's got his style down so, so good. I mean, not that I'm not, you know, decent guitar proficient or whatever, but like, I just hear that and I'm like, man, the de- the dedication, devotion, and and just like natural ability there is like other level, you know. And I have to really work at it to get to get to that point. And yeah. I just feel like uh, I'm so far behind. And he's younger than I am too, which makes it worse. So well, you're younger than I am. 
you are literally young enough to be my kid. <laughs> but, but Jim, but but think about it. Like the level of guitar playing when you were a kid versus what it is now is right. like a whole it's different ball game. Right now. Yeah. It really yeah. is. There were much, much fewer, um, you know, uh, what do they call it? Wonder kinds, uh, you know, as well, there I, are now. I think a lot of it's just the ceiling wasn't as high. So people didn't set their sights as high. You know, right. you didn't have Van Halen to be like when you were like, 10 years old, you weren't like looking at Van Halen no. and going, that's there what I no want to do. Halen. And there, now people are right. like Van Halen. He's not even that good. You know, like, yeah, <laughs> um, what we will have to have a, uh, um, an eruption off one of these days. Uh, yeah, we could do that. We could yeah. do that. That'd be fun. I think we should do an Ingve off. Oh God. You You're kind of going a, a you little fast. You want to play, you want to play far beyond the sun with me? <laughs> <laughs> I'll hold down the bass line. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know Ingve plays his own bass know. parts, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just a, but at least I could probably pull that off. Um, I don't think I could pull any Ingve off, honestly. I could probably do like I Am a Viking or something like that. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. or uh, Paradise or whatever it is. Um, but I don't think I could probably do something off of uh, that first record. He's he's still one of those dudes that like his style is so is so specific that in order to play his music, you really have to hone in on his style. Exactly. And I just don't have the devotion to be like, I'm going to learn to play Yngwie. Um, right. I don't mind adapting some of his techniques. Like obviously I've done that, but uh, I'm not going to be the dude that's like, I'm going to learn, uh, was it uh black star? And I knew a guy that could play black star and then turn yeah, around yeah. and go play a bunch of Pantera stuff. Um, And he was in what he was in what my first band for like two weeks. And it was so funny because he was so much better than we were at the time. And then he went around and told people after after he stopped coming to rehearsals or what. He went around and told people how much we sucked or whatever. And I could just remember wow. thinking like for a long time. A jerk. Like, I can remember thinking for a long time like, yeah, he can talk shit all he wants. But someday I'm going to be better than him. And I haven't run into him in a while. Um, I hear rumblings of him every now and then. I don't think he's playing with anybody. Yeah. And... That's well, just an attitude issue. Like somebody, yeah, I was gonna say somebody with an attitude like that doesn't matter how good they are. Nobody wants them around after. A I while. was smart enough at that time that I saw this guy being really good, and I was like, I want to learn from him. Like I want to pay attention right. to what he's doing. Um, and I'm certain that there were things that I knew how to do even back then that he couldn't. Um, but he was very good at certain things too. So it's like it's a give and take thing. Like everybody, you when you evaluate a player, don't ever throw them under the bus because I can guarantee you they have something in their bag of tricks, even a beginner that you, that you don't right. get. Right. Um, there is always I, something you can learn. Yeah. So just you know, take a step back, try to evaluate it for what it is, and don't ever think that a player is better or worse. This is not a competition. Nope. Nope. Last I checked, it is I, not a competition. I have been David. I'm a Jim. And we have been practical guitarists on video. Yes, we have.